All right. Well, thanks everybody for coming out. Um, especially on a rainy night. I had some negative thoughts about how many people might turn out on such a day, but I appreciate that you made the effort to be here. And today what we're going to be doing on this dark and rainy night is hopefully shedding a little bit of light on um, the problem of depression. And I want to share with you some ideas and information that hopefully will help either you if you yourself are dealing with depression, or if you have a loved one who's suffering from depression, hopefully we're going to provide you with some ideas and some resources that you can access to help them along in their journey. So in terms of... So the slides will be available on the website, um, the website of our, our clinic, which is www.nssac.ca, but yes, they'll be available. And also, sort of a, a little uh, poster card is available at the back that has the kind of six key steps that I'm going to be talking about, so feel free to pick one of those up on your way out as well. So in terms of what we're going to be covering off today, an overview of the talk, um, we're going to be talking about what depression is. So. What are the signs and symptoms of depression? How do I know if I have depression? We're gonna be talking about why some people get depression. So what are some of the key symptoms that we look for and why are some people at higher risk? Because we know there are some risk factors that do put you at higher risk of developing depression. We're also gonna talk about how depression is treated. Um, so what are the different treatment options that are available? Obviously tonight as a psychologist, I'm gonna be focusing more on the psychological treatments for depression. And in particular, I'm gonna be talking about cognitive behavioral therapy for depression, which is an evidence-based treatment approach. Um, but we'll also briefly touch on some of the other evidence-based approaches that you or your loved ones may wish to pursue. Um, we'll also be talking about what, what CBT is um, and how does it work. So to give you a general understanding of that process and what that looks like. Um, and then we'll be talking about how you can take some of the key ideas and principles from this evidence-based treatment approach and how you can actually apply them in your own, your own life. So I'm gonna try to give you sort of six key ideas or skills that you can hopefully walk away with tonight and apply either in your own life or encourage someone that you'd love to apply them in their lives. Rami, is there any way to get the slides a little bit bigger? Because the printing's a bit small for me to see from here. No? Okay. All right. And then finally, we're going to work on talking about some ideas for how you can help to love to one with depression. So if you have someone in your life that you are um, supporting through depression, what are some things that you can do to help them, which both involves helping them, but also making sure that you're taking good care of yourself. Um, and then finally, I'm going to talk about some resources that are low cost, or actually most of them are free, um, that you can access if you're interested. All right. So... First of all, let's talk about what depression is. So what are some of the common signs and symptoms of depression? So typically when people say they're depressed, um, what they're talking about, uh, what they usually focus on is the emotional symptoms of depression. So typically when people are feeling depressed, they'll say that they feel sad or they feel down or empty, um, low, something like that. And one of the things about depression is that it doesn't involve just feeling low or down for an afternoon or a day or even a couple of days or even technically a week. So we're looking for somebody who's feeling like that most of the day, nearly every day, for at least a couple of weeks. So it's really kind of a persistent problem. So most typically when someone's experiencing depression, that's one of the things you'll see. But there's also another important symptom of depression, um, which is the technical term for it is anhedonia. And basically what that means is you've kind of lost interest or pleasure in things that formerly were enjoyable to you. So an example might be if you were somebody who really loved to play tennis and you became depressed and your best friend said, hey, let's go play a game of tennis, you might say, you know what, I'm kind of not feeling up to it, it kind of isn't that enjoyable for me anymore and you might even not want to go. So loss of interest or pleasure in activities that you formerly enjoyed. And not just for a day or two because you're feeling tired, but persistently over a longer period of time. Um, there are a lot of other symptoms that come along with depression. So loss of motivation would be another example. So when people are depressed, 
partly because of some of the other symptoms of depression, like low energy, they tend to find it really hard to get going, hard to get motivated to do things. Um, so they may find it difficult to take care of tasks around the house, to socialize, things like that. So low motivation is another important piece. Sometimes when people are depressed, they'll have significant changes in their appetite, and it can kind of go both ways. So there are some people who, when they come depressed, really lose their appetite and can't really be bothered to eat. It feels like too much of an effort to cook. And there are other people who go to the other extreme and may actually um, eat more than they normally would or have an increased appetite. And sometimes they'll even choose uh, options for eating that aren't very healthy. So they may want to increase their consumption of sweets, for example, or carbs. So sometimes people will kind of self-medicate in that way. Um, a lot of times there are sleep problems that come along with depression, and that this can happen in a number of different ways. Most commonly in depression, what we see is insomnia or middle insomnia, which basically means you fall asleep okay, but at some point in the middle of the night, you wake up and it's really tough for you to fall back asleep. Or another type of sleep problem that we see is what we call terminal insomnia, which basically means that you wake up in the morning really early and it's difficult for you to get back to sleep. So not the middle of the night, but kind of right around the time you're supposed to be waking up, maybe an hour before your alarm goes off, and then you're stuck and you can't fall back asleep. Again, some people have the opposite problem. So sometimes when people are very depressed, they have hypersomnia, which means they want to sleep all the time. And even when they do get a lot of sleep, they don't feel refreshed. So these might be people who are sleeping for nine or 10 hours. And even at the end of that, they still feel really draggy and really exhausted. Some people experience um, kind of a sensation of being sped up or slowed down. So sometimes people will say they feel really restless or jittery, like they can't sit still. And other people have the opposite problem. They'll feel really slowed down, almost like they're moving in slow motion or they're trying to walk through quicksand. Either can occur in depression, and usually if it does occur, it's fairly significant in the sense that other people can notice it and observe it as well. Of course, low energy and fatigue are part of depression, in part because of those sleep problems and the consequences of that. And then feelings of guilt or worthlessness. So again, this isn't feeling guilty about one little thing. It's a persistent feeling of just guilt that you're underperforming or worthlessness that you're not worth time or energy or effort. Um, and sometimes this can be one of the reasons that people don't seek treatment because they feel like they're not deserving of it. Other symptoms can include things like social withdrawal. So being social um, takes energy. Um, it takes time and it takes energy to get out and interact with other people. And particularly if you want to present yourself as someone who's actually doing okay, it can feel exhausting to actually have to get up, get out of bed, have a shower, put on some clothes, and then kind of go out with your friends and, and put a happy face on things. And so a lot of times people with depression will actually start to pull back from their social network. And of course that's a real problem because oftentimes our social network is a real source of strength and support. And so if we're not accessing that, it can create real issues. Another reason people pull back is sometimes irritability. So when we think about depressed people, sometimes what we think about is kind of the sad, down people. Some people with depression actually aren't particularly sad or down at all. Some people are more not enjoying things and becoming actually quite irritable. So sometimes irritability can cause problems in depression, cause problems in relationships, and then that leads to either you pulling back from people or sometimes people pulling back from you if the irritability is quite bad. Um, a lot of people report problems with decreased sex drive, so that's one of the sort of physiological consequences that people's sex drive will often be lower. Some people report problems with tearfulness or crying, so they kind of well up really easily or burst into tears really easily, which can be a problem, particularly when people are bursting into tears in situations where that's considered to not be appropriate, like right now as I'm giving a presentation or at work, those kinds of situations. 
And then one of the really difficult cognitive symptoms of depression is problems with your, your mind kind of works differently. So it can be quite difficult to concentrate. It can be really difficult to remember things. Um, you can be quite forgetful. Um, and sometimes you can get really stuck making decisions, even really basic decisions, like which kind of cheese should I buy at the supermarket can suddenly become this really insurmountable thing. Um, so there's a very strong cognitive component to depression as well. And then I've included on this side um, thoughts of death, um, because it's important to recognize that when people are feeling all of these difficult symptoms, it's not uncommon that they may have suicidal thoughts. They may just have thoughts that are quite passive, like sometimes I wish I wasn't here, or sometimes I think I'd be better off dead. Um, it can progress all the way to more significant symptoms, like um, actually having thoughts about what they would do if they were gonna kill themselves or having a plan. And of course, in some cases, people actually will make a suicide attempt if these symptoms are very strong and prolonged and they're feeling quite hopeless about the possibility of getting better. So these are some of the signs and symptoms that we see in depression. Obviously, not everybody's gonna have every symptom, right? Everybody has kind of their own flavor of depression in terms of the symptoms that are bothersome to them. But we tend to call it depression when these symptoms are persistent um, and when they're interfering with your life. So they're getting in the way of things that you wanna be able to do. They're getting in the way of you being able to function at work. They're disrupting your relationships. Um, you feel like you're just not enjoying life anymore because of these symptoms. So when the symptoms are sort of intense and they're prolonged and they're interfering with your ability to function, that's when we're most likely to actually put a diagnosis of major depression on it or clinical depression as some people call it. Um, about 80% of people with depression are impaired in their daily functioning. So while there's a huge range from people who are quite mild to people who are more severe, in most cases, even mild cases, there's some sort of impact on how they function in day-to-day -day life. And that's one of the reasons why it's really important for us to be able to identify it and treat it effectively. So if we think about the kind of stats on depression, now that we've talked about um, what it looks like, we know that over the course of your lifespan, about 12% of people will actually have a diagnosable clinical depression. Um, and at any one point in time, about 5% of the population is suffering from major depression. So if you look at the number of people who live on the North Shore and you do the math and you extrapolate from that, it means about 9,000 people on the North Shore are dealing with what we would consider to be major depression. And that's a pretty startling figure. And I think what's even more startling is that, of course, these numbers only capture the people that would actually have sort of depression that we would consider to be clinical. There are a lot of people walking around who may not have a clinical depression, but who are experiencing enough of these symptoms to really be suffering and to need and, and want help. One of the interesting things about depression is that it does seem to be disproportionately a problem that women experience. So in childhood, the rates of depression, there are about as many depressed little boys as there are depressed little girls. But something happens around the teenage years and suddenly from adolescence onwards, women are twice as likely to develop depression as men are. And we don't really know why, um, but I think that's an important thing to remember about depression. A lot of women are being diagnosed. And it looks like it's a very fast rising diagnosis, meaning that a lot of people are being affected and we expect even more people to be diagnosed over time. And we could kind of speculate as to the reasons behind that and later at the end of the talk, if you like, I can, I can do that. Um, but for now, I think it's just important to recognize this is a very significant problem affecting a lot of people with some pretty serious outcomes. 
So in terms of risk factors, what makes you at higher risk of developing depression? Probably the number one risk factor that we think about is your own personal experience of depression. So if you yourself had previously had an episode of major depression, it's more likely that you'll have a second episode. So about 50% of people who have one episode will have another episode within a 10-year period. And the more episodes you have, the more vulnerable you are to having um, episodes in the future. So it, it can become a relapsing problem, and that's one of the reasons why it's so important to seek out effective treatment. The other thing that makes you more vulnerable is having um, family members who have had problems with depression or substance use. So one of the things that we know is that if you have what we call a first-degree relative, so that means your mom, your dad, your sister, your brother, someone like that that you're very closely related to genetically, if they have problems with depression, your risk is two to four times higher than the risk of somebody in the general population who doesn't have a family member with depression. So that does tell us that there's something going on and that depression has a little bit of a familial pattern. That doesn't actually tell us how much of it is genetics and how much of it is environment, because of course, in addition to sharing genetics with our family members, we also share environmental factors. Um, so we don't really know how exactly that balance works out, but we do know that's a risk factor. And the more early that um, your family member developed depression, and the more severe their depression was, the higher your risks. So that will put you closer to the four times the risk as opposed to the two times the risk. Um, other factors, things like recent loss. So if you've gone through a divorce or you've lost someone, a loved one that you're very close to, that definitely increases your risk. Um, if you're dealing with some sort of chronic health condition, so things like um, you know, cardiovascular disease um, or any other sort of chronic pain or health condition, that definitely increases your risk of depression. If you're going through stressful life events or traumatic life events, that will also increase your risk of depression. And a lot of times people who are dealing with kind of chronic stressors, so things like low income, um, unemployment or underemployment where you're not working as regularly as you'd like to, um, you know, poor housing conditions, all those things definitely increase your risk of developing depression. And of course, domestic abuse or violence is also a major risk factor. So with all of that in mind, what I'd like to do now is kind of shift gears a little bit and talk about a model for understanding depression. So that's kind of all the, the facts of it. How does it actually work? So I think it's often easiest to understand this in reference to a particular um, situation. So let's take a situation and kind of see if we can understand how depression works based on that. So let's imagine a person who, um, you know, is maybe midlife, sometime in their 40s or 50s, and they've been kind of, you know, reasonably successful career-wise and suddenly they get that dreaded conversation with their supervisor where their supervisor announces that actually the company is going through some restructuring and some downsizing and that unfortunately um, your position has been eliminated. And of course we're gonna offer you some support as you transition but the, basically your job's been eliminated. So that would be an example of the situation that we're talking about here. In that situation, a lot of people would experience some changes in their thoughts. Right? So can anybody think of any sort of examples of a thought that might go through your head if suddenly you found out that you were the one whose job got eliminated as part of downsizing? How am I going to support my family? That's a really scary thought. Anything else? I've always been a terrible employee. You guys are good at this. They've just never told me until now. I would, I would personally be thinking, well, why me? Like, there's so many different employees to select from. Why was I the person that suddenly got chosen for this demotion? So those are some good examples of some of the thoughts that might go through your head. So imagine you've been told that, that you're being downsized, your job has been eliminated, 
Um, you're thinking, why me? I was always a crappy employee. They only just now caught on. How am I going to support my family? How do you think that's going to affect how you feel emotionally? What are some of the emotions that go along with those kinds of thoughts? Fear, yeah, absolutely. Any other ideas? Anger, yeah, I'd be, I'd be pretty angry. I wonder why me? Why not the lady at the desk next door? Sorry? Not, not feeling good about yourself, yeah. So it'd be a lot of them. I noticed no one said like happiness, joy, um, enthusiasm, right? So, so these thoughts are naturally associated with some pretty upsetting emotions. And what's kind of interesting is that this relationship kind of runs both ways. So those kinds of negative thoughts will tend to make you feel those kinds of negative emotions. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but once you're kind of in a negative mood state, so once you're already feeling down or sad, it tends to attract thoughts that kind of match that mood state, right? It's like a magnet with little negative thought filings skittering across the floor towards you. So when you're feeling down, all you can remember are all the people who let you down, all the disappointments you've had, you know, the things you wanted that you didn't get. So you can get caught in this loop of kind of negative thoughts causing negative feelings and negative feelings causing negative thoughts, and you can start kind of looping around. So this poor man, he's been made redundant, as they say in the UK. He's having all these negative thoughts. Now he's having negative emotions. How do you think that might affect how he feels physically? There are usually physical consequences to these kinds of thoughts and behaviors, or thoughts and feelings. You might feel sick to his stomach, yeah. My family does a lot of that, yes. We feel sick to our stomachs, yeah. Anything else? Yeah, you might, you might hold your breath and brace. So there could be muscle tension, too, as part of that. Absolutely. Sleep might be a bit off, right? You might find it's difficult to get to sleep because you're lying awake wondering how you're going to support your family or ruminating about why they didn't fire Bob from one desk over. So those would be some of the physical consequences. So now you're not sleeping well, you're feeling sick to your stomach, you're tense all the time. How do you think that's going to impact on your behaviors? What might look different? I mean, one difference is you're not going to work anymore. So you kind of don't need to set an alarm, really. Because nobody's expecting you to show up at the office anymore. In fact, if you do, they'd probably be frightened and call security. So you're not getting up. You're not going to the office. Um, if you feel, if you're not sleeping well and you're feeling kind of low energy, you might also start to change some other behaviors. What other stuff might you do more or less of if you're feeling this way? You might just stay in bed. Like, why bother? Just rock the pajamas and kind of hang out there, watch Netflix. Yeah, but perhaps I've revealed too much. Um, other examples. <laughs> you might stop your exercise program, and that's actually a really important one, which we'll come back to in a minute. Yeah, any other ideas? Yeah, you might not eat properly, right? You might, yeah, junk food, anything that can be delivered to the door that you can accept in your pajamas. Yeah. Okay, so now you're a Netflix-watching, pajama-wearing, junk food-eating, non-exercising person. How's that going to affect your thoughts about yourself? Yeah, you're not going to see yourself as a real winner, right? You're not winning at this stage. And so because you're having those negative thoughts, even more negative thoughts now, how's that going to affect your emotions? Again, not joy and enthusiasm, right? And then how are you going to feel physically? More energetic? Less energetic? Less energetic, right? And then what's that going to do to your behaviors? You're going to go downhill. This is a very depressing picture that we're pointing, but you get the point, right? That all of these components are interconnected and they're all kind of feeding on one another. And I actually saw someone in the audience do this. Yeah, negative spiral going downhill. You're exactly right. All right, well, that was depressing. Let's move on. So what do we do to treat depression? Because as it turns out, it is treatable. Um, so the good news is there are actually effective treatments available for depression. 
Um, and basically they fall into two categories. So there are, um, there are pharmacological treatments, so basically medications that have been shown to be effective in the treatment of depression. I'm not going to talk very much about that because I'm a psychologist, not a psychiatrist. What I'm going to talk more about is the psychological treatment approaches. And basically there are two psychological treatment approaches that have been shown in sort of randomized controlled clinical trials, scientific studies, to be effective in the treatment of depression. And one approach is cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, which is what I do and what we do at our clinic. And the other one is interpersonal, interpersonal psychotherapy or IPT. I'm not going to talk as much about that one tonight, but essentially that uh, particular form of treatment looks at patterns of interacting in interpersonal relationships and how that may contribute to and maintain depression. So the good news is there is effective treatment. The bad news is um, not a lot of people are actually getting effective treatment for depression. A lot of people are actually getting treatment, um, but they're all getting effective treatment. There's a difference between treatment and treatment that works. Um, and we know at this point that about 60% of people with severe depression are not getting any treatment at all, and about 75% of people with moderate depression aren't getting any treatment at all, which is actually quite shocking given how treatable it is. Why are people not getting treated? Probably a variety of things. First of all, stigma. Um, people don't want to talk about it. It's embarrassing to talk about, and that's why evenings like today are so important to bring people together and to talk about it and get the word out about effective treatments and what can be done. Um, a lot of times symptoms are overlooked, you know, so the we'll call him Bob, uh, the person we were talking about earlier, he might go to his doctor and he says, my tummy's upset and I'm not sleeping. And his doctor might not think to ask him, what's going on in your life? Have you been feeling particularly low or down? Um, so a lot of times it gets missed. Um, I work a lot with pregnant and postpartum women. Um, a pregnant woman that comes to the doctor and says she feels tired and her tummy's off, the doctor's gonna say, welcome to pregnancy. Um, and she might actually be depressed and the doctor may miss that because some of the symptoms kind of overlap. So that can be an important barrier as well. Um, and also cost, it can be expensive depending on what your healthcare situation is. You may or may not have coverage for medication and you may or may not have coverage for psychological treatment. So that may be another reason why people don't get treatment. Now the good news is that um, there are things that you can do to help yourself. And so what I'm going to be talking about today is, is about CBT, about cognitive behavioral therapy. And so I'm gonna talk a little bit about how it works briefly. And then I'm gonna talk about some actual skills that you guys can take home with you and use yourself or share with your loved ones. So CBT is um, a different kind of psychological therapy. So it is a short-term problem-focused treatment it teaches you coping skills so that you can better manage your mood. So it's not a therapy that involves a lot of talking about the past or what your parents were like. It's really a treatment that helps you to focus on what's going on right now that's kind of keeping the depression going and what can we do from this point forward to start making some changes that are going to help you to feel better. So it's very action-oriented, very problem-focused, and it's short-term. Generally speaking, if you're doing CBT for five years, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Seek out another psychologist. It should be a short-term um, kind of experience. Um, I think the other thing that's important to remember is that it works for, depends on the study, but about 75% of people who complete a course of CBT will report significant improvement. So that's actually, within the field of, of mental health, wildly successful overall. It doesn't work for everybody. And one of the things that really predicts whether or not it's going to work is how much kind of time and effort and energy you put into doing the CBT. So it's not for everybody. Some people who are very severely depressed might not have the energy to get themselves up and get to their therapist's office and might not be able to do the tasks that are assigned to work on between sessions in order to improve. So it's not for everybody, 
but a lot of people find it to be highly effective. And so tonight what I want to do, kind of the next little bit of our talk, is to talk about how you can actually apply this in your life and how you can apply some key skills. So if we go back to our model, um, I told you the bad news was that everything was interconnected and we got that kind of spiral thing going on. Um, the good news is everything's interconnected. Yeah, he saw it coming. Everything's interconnected, right? So that means that if you make positive changes in any one area, you can start positive changes going throughout the whole system. And so really our job is to figure out where's the kind of easiest place to apply some pressure and start getting some changes. Minimum amount of effort, maximum amount of output. So essentially what we do is we focus on making small planned changes to behaviors and small planned changes to thinking patterns in order to create positive change in the system. So what I now want to do for the rest of the talk is take 12 years university and boil it down <laughs> into six, it is sort of depressing, boil it down into six key tips um, that will kind of summarize CBT. And these are, the key, these are the key tips. So what I'm going to do over the next little while is kind of walk through each of these tips and talk about how you can apply that tip in your life or how you can encourage someone that you love who's suffering from depression to apply that in their lives. So the first one is just to kind of learn about low mood and effective treatments, and that's kind of what we've already started doing tonight. So we've already talked about, you know, what it is and what the risk factors are and what treatment approaches have been shown to work. Um, we haven't yet, but we will talk about resources that you can access in your community or encourage your loved one to access. And really the whole point of doing that is to gather some information then to be able to say, you know, what skills can I take forward from this to apply in my own life? Or what resources can I access based on the information I've gathered in order to help me to move forward so that I can improve my mood and improve my overall functioning? So the first step is really just to become educated, and that's kind of what we've started doing already tonight. The next step is really about changing behaviors. Um, so if we think, think back again to that diagram, behaviors are normally where we start. And the reason that we start with behaviors is because, generally speaking, behaviors are easier to shift than thinking patterns. And again, remember I said we want to find kind of the, the easiest part to apply pressure to to get some change. Usually behaviors are, are easier to shift than thoughts. And because everything's interconnected, as long as you get the process started, um, often by changing behaviors, everything else tends to gradually come back online when you do that. So what we want to do then is have a plan for how we're going to start making some changes to behaviors. And there, it does make a difference where you start. Um, generally speaking, as people become depressed, as they don't sleep very well and they have low energy and low mood, um, they don't enjoy things very much, they start to kind of pull back on activities. And generally speaking, the activities we pull back on aren't the things like feeding the dog. We still usually feed the dog. We still usually take our kids to school. We still kind of show up for work, although we might be tired or cranky or staring off into space where we might actually fall asleep. Um, but usually the things we pull back on first are kind of the extras, the things that kind of make life interesting. So you, you don't meet up with your girlfriends or you don't go for that run or you don't take the time to go get a haircut, or you don't um, return phone calls. The things that we pull back on first are often some of the things that actually are very important to us personally in terms of feeling well. Because for most of us, if you think about the things that you enjoy in your life that actually give you a boost or make you feel good about yourself, if you kind of systematically sucked those out of your schedule, you probably wouldn't survive very long before your mood would go downhill. So one of the first things we need to do is actually put those things back into our schedule. So where do we start? Usually we start with self-care behaviors 
and with kind of other, what I think of as daily ingredients. So self-care behaviors are things that you guys have already talked about. Your diet, your exercise, um, making sure you're getting enough sleep, um, limiting things like caffeine or drugs or alcohol that you may have turned to as a way of coping with some of these negative feelings. But you also need to look at other things. Like, as I said, enjoyable activities. Usually one of the first things on the chopping block is things that we enjoy, and most of us don't do very well when you take away everything that we enjoy. So it turns out that's actually pretty important to put back into your life, and actually that's one of the first things that we usually make a plan to put back into somebody's life, which a lot of people think seems very frivolous, but it's actually a, a really important part of your wellness. Um, in addition to things we enjoy, things that give you a sense of accomplishment, and I don't mean like completing a master's degree, I mean, you know, submitting your medical receipts so that you can get reimbursed before the end of the year. Um, you know, picking up your dry cleaning, sending off that letter to, thank you letter to your aunt so your mom will get off your back. You know, those kinds of things. The little things that are just kind of, they're on your to-do list and when you tick them off you feel like, okay, I'm kind of, I'm getting things done, I'm taking care of business, I'm on top of things. Turns out that's actually pretty important to a sense of wellness. So those are important things to look at. Um, can be other things like connecting with others. I talked about social withdrawal being a part of depression. Most of us feel better when we see our people, when we're connected to our people. Even if we're not talking to our people about what's going on, even if we don't feel comfortable sharing you know, the depths of what we're experiencing, just being around people, being around our nieces and nephews or our grandkids or our children can often be a source of joy and support. Um, and overcoming avoidance. The little things you really know you should do that you're not doing, and every day when you wake up in the morning you say, I'm going to do that, and then at 11 o'clock at night you realize you didn't do that, and you feel awful, and then you promise yourself the next morning that you're going to do that, and then the cycle repeats. It turns out that stuff really hangs over your head, and it really actually leeches your sense of well-being, and so those things turn out to be important as well. So those are some of the things you might choose to target. Now, it's really important to only target, you know, one or two at a time. Um, you don't want to get crazy. So you want to pick one or two areas that you're going to focus in on. Um, and you want to do this very, in a very specific way. So when you're setting goals related to one of these areas, you want to make sure your goals are really specific so you know what you're going to do. Exercise more is not a specific goal. It's a goal, but it's not terribly specific. You want to make sure that your goals are scheduled. You know, so if you say, I'm going to exercise this week, you want to be specific about when that's going to happen. So what day of the week is going to happen, what time of day is it going to happen. And probably most importantly, you want to make sure that your goals are realistic. So you want to set goals that are actually attainable, things you can actually do. So to give you some examples of goals, um, one example for going for a walk might be going for a walk to and from the community mailbox, which increasingly we're all getting, um, which might be a 10-minute walk there and back, and then being specific about when you're going to do it, like I'm going to do it after work on Tuesdays and Thursdays. That's a pretty nice specific goal. I'll know if I've done that. Um, or if I, I need to reconnect with a family member calling my sister and having a 15-minute phone chat with her on Sunday after church might be an example of a nice specific goal. Now, when you're setting these goals for yourself, it's important that you set your goals in terms of what you've been able to accomplish recently. So, um, there was a time in my life, a very long, long time ago, I won't be more specific than that, um, when I was running up to 10K a day. That was many, many, many years ago. Um, so if I set a goal thinking I'm gonna get back into shape, which actually is a goal, Setting a goal to run 10K a day would be completely unrealistic. I couldn't run 10K now if my life depended on it, literally. So I need to set a goal that matches kind of what I've been up to lately. Um, so if lately I've been running for 2K, then a goal of 2K is probably much more realistic than a goal of 10K. 
So when people set goals, one of the things that we do in the office is we sort of say, so if this is the goal, how confident are you that if you feel exactly the way for the rest of the week, people exactly the way you feel today, how confident are you that you can pull that off? And we're kind of looking for people to say like 90%. If they're like 50-50, well, then what we do is we back it up, we make the goal easier. Could you run one kilometer? They say, oh, it's kind of 70%. Okay, could you run 500 meters? And we keep on backing it up until we get a number that's high, until we get something that they actually feel like they can do. And that's actually terribly, terribly important. And we have kind of a little diagram that can sort of explain why this is important. So this diagram, and I forgot my pointer, this diagram uh, illustrates kind of the expectations or goals you set for yourself. So that red line at the top is kind of what your expectation and goals are for yourself. And on the other axis, we have kind of your motivation or energy. So generally speaking, if things in your life are going reasonably well, what's happening is that, you know, you've got your goals and you've got what you can do, and they kind of more or less line up. I mean, you're not winning every day, but most days you're kind of hitting the target, and so that makes us feel pretty good about ourselves. But then something happens and you get depressed. And of course, one of the things we know that happens when you get depressed is your energy gets lower and your motivation gets lower. And so suddenly what you're able to pull off starts to kind of dip down a little bit. And you think, well, this is really shameful. I need to kind of pull, up my, pull myself up and get something done here. And so you set your expectations the same or maybe even a little bit higher because you've got to catch up now because you've been kind of falling behind on stuff. And so you set your expectations a little bit higher. You say, I'm going to try harder. And you do. but actually that doesn't get you anywhere and now you think okay no no the solution to this is I just, I've got to try harder I got to really make my effort and make this happen and so you try that and then ooh, now you're really nowhere near your expectations or your goals for yourself so what's happening is your ability to pull off this stuff is dropping but your expectations are the same and what that basically means is that every single day you get up and you have your to-do list and you fail and then you get up the next day and you have your to-do list and you fail. And then you get up the next day and you fail. And repeated failure experiences are not mood enhancing. They actually tend to run you down. So what's kind of interesting is that actually, if you want to get back on track, the fastest way to get back on track is actually to lower your expectations for yourself. To bring that line of expectations down to what you can actually do so those two things kind of line up a little bit so that you actually feel like, okay, well, the goal was to run for 500 meters and I did that and then you set your goal to maybe 600 meters the next week and then you hit that and you think okay I'm starting to get somewhere with this and now it's 750 and actually you're hitting that target and you can actually get there faster by gearing down. I don't drive in the snow because I grew up in White Rock and it doesn't snow in White Rock um, but it's my understanding that if you if you're in the snow and you're trying to get going a lot of people and my tendency because I don't drive in the snow would be to stomp on the accelerator that is like the wrong approach this is basically stomping on the accelerator don't do that my understanding from people that drive in the snow is that you need to gear down and get into low gear and you just need to get that little catch that little bit of momentum that little bit of grip and from there you can actually get going quite quickly that's what we're looking to do in depression. We actually want to dial it back until we can catch. So I don't care if my client does a 100-meter run. I'm very happy with that. If that's the goal we set and that's what they hit, I'm thrilled because we can build from there. So it kind of doesn't matter what the goal is, just as long as there is a goal and we're confident they can hit it because that will start to build momentum. Does that make sense? Gear down. Okay. So this kind of then segues us nicely into thinking patterns associated with depression, because that slide had a lot of, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and, and some negative thinking patterns that are associated with depression. So we know um, 
that unhelpful, unrealistic thinking is extremely common in depression. Frankly, it's actually extremely common for all of us. If you take any of us and you sleep deprive us, um, you make us you know, tired or um, you make us, you know, we have low mood because something rough happened, we will tend to have more negative thinking styles. And negative thinking patterns can be part of why depression starts. Um, it can also be part of what keeps depression going. So we kind of saw that with uh, Bob when he lost his job, right? It was part of what got it going and it was part of what kept it going. It turns out that when people are depressed, even though everybody's different, when people are depressed, there are certain types of thinking that are really kind of characteristic of depression. And one type of thinking that's really characteristic of depression is having a really negative view of yourself. Just really beaten up on yourself and being really nasty to yourself. Usually a lot nastier than you'd be to anybody else in your life. But just really beating up on yourself. So Bob's saying, I was never a good worker and it just took me this long to figure it out. Um, I'm lazy, I'm stupid, um, I'm never gonna accomplish anything. That kind of negative self-critical thought, which as we saw earlier, thoughts affect how we feel emotionally. Another type of negative uh, sort of bias and depression is really negative, a negative view of the world and a negative view of other people. So, you know, focusing on the bad stuff. And, you know, nowadays with the media and the fact that if someone gets shot halfway around the world, I know about it. Um, it's very easy to get very focused on all the bad stuff. We don't have a lot of an emphasis on the good news. And in depression, of course, because negative emotional states tend to attract negative thoughts, and it also makes you pay attention to the negative stuff. So when we're depressed, we almost have this negative filter on where we selectively pay attention to the stuff that's bad and depressing and sad, and we don't tend to process. We tend to disregard the things that are kind of more hopeful. And then a negative view of the future. So once we're depressed, we tend to expect that it's just gonna keep on going like this. It's not gonna get better. We're gonna feel awful like this forever. And that can lead to people feeling very hopeless. So we know that when people are depressed, they have a tendency to fall into kind of this pattern of thinking. And um, there, are, there are even more specific patterns of thinking that people will sometimes fall into when they're depressed, which we'll talk about in a minute. But here are some examples of kind of negative thinking that people might experience. You know, I'm a failure. People at work think I'm incompetent. I'm never going to find a partner. Um, you know, this pain isn't going to get better. My family hates me. I mess things up. Um, the world's a harsh place. People are generally not kind. They're selfish. Um, those kinds of thoughts. And you can see that if that's the way you're experiencing the world, if that's the kind of thinking patterns you have going on, it, it becomes, the world becomes quite a scary place. So the next few slides give some examples of kinds of cognitive distortions, or I call them thinking traps, that people tend to fall into when they're depressed. So one of the really common types of thinking trap that you may have heard of is kind of all or nothing thinking or black and white thinking, right? So, so today when I do this presentation at the end, it was either brilliant or it was crap. And if I'm depressed, I'm gonna be convinced it was crap. Um, uh, Mind reading, thinking that we know. So me sitting out here thinking that guy in the front row is really not enjoying my talk. He really thinks I'm not terribly competent. We tend to mind read when we're depressed. And we don't mind read. These people think I'm exciting and attractive and dynamic. We tend to mind read. They think I'm boring and unattractive and dull. Um, other examples of thinking traps could be things like, uh, which ones do we have up here? Should statements. I should be better at this. I must get this done. Um, Overgeneralization, you know, I do one talk that doesn't go well, I'm a terrible speaker. 
um, those kinds of things. So there are certain kinds of patterns of thinking that we run into, and I'm not going to take the time to go through all of them today, um, but they are on the slides, and you can look them up. And in fact, you can Google them, and a whole bunch of really disturbing things will show up on your computer screen. But there are a lot of them, suffice it to say. So what I wanted to do next was kind of talk about um, a four-step approach to how to start challenging some of these negative thoughts. So when I was working at Women's Hospital, one of the things I asked me to do was write a, a book on how to manage depression in pregnant and postpartum women, and I kind of tried to boil down how to challenge negative thoughts into four steps. So it's kind of a gross oversimplification of CBT, but here we go. Um, it's my own fault because I wrote it. So let's take, um, well, actually, let's go back. So step one is you need to recognize when you're having unhelpful thinking. You need to recognize when you're having a negative thought. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about thinking is that we're constantly thinking without knowing we're thinking. So right now, as you're sitting here, you're having thoughts. You probably don't think you're having thoughts, but you probably are having thoughts about how fast I talk or how long this talk is or whether I'm interesting or whether you like the blue of my dress, which really you should. Um, <laughs> so you're having thoughts even though you may not realize that you're having thoughts. And so the first thing you need to do is recognize that you're having thoughts. And one of the really good ways to catch your thoughts is to recognize when there's a shift. You know, so if you're walking down the street, you're feeling pretty good, and you all of a sudden, by the time you get to the mailbox, you realize you're in a filthy mood, probably a thought happened, and that's why your mood went down. So you can use kind of shifts in your mood to help you identify when you've had a negative thought. And it's good to kind of stop and ask yourself, what was I thinking just before that happened? So let's take an example. Um, it's a new mom example, because I work so much with new moms. So... Imagine we have a new mom, Mia, and she has a, a new baby, and she's having a lot of trouble settling the baby down. Lately, when the baby gets worked up, it's taken like 30 minutes to calm the baby down, which is really annoying. So she's complaining to her mom about how the baby's so difficult, and the baby starts to screech, and she's like, well, here we go again. And she starts trying to calm down the baby, and mom says, well, let me take the baby. So she passes the baby over to mom, and of course, the baby just whoop, suddenly shuts up. So mom soothes the baby in like under five minutes. And immediately Mia thinks, oh my God, why can't I ever settle her down that fast? I should know how to do that. She's my baby after all. My mom must think I'm a terrible mother. So that's the thought that kind of skittered across her brain. So the next step is to identify the thinking traps. So what were the kind of biases or distortions in her thinking that she was experiencing? So here I've given three examples. So we can see an example of a should statement. I should be able to settle my baby. We can see an example of overgeneralizing. Why can't I ever settle my baby that fast? Probably she can sometimes settle her baby that fast. Um, labeling. She's labeling herself as a terrible mother. And one I forgot, which is actually mind reading. She thinks she knows what her mom is thinking, but we don't actually know what her mom is thinking unless we ask her mom. The reason why identifying those um, thinking traps can be helpful, there's kind of two reasons. So one reason is that we kind of tend to have certain thinking traps that we fall into again and again and again. So some of us are really good mind readers and we mind read in all kinds of situations. Some of us really jump to conclusions. We always think we know what's gonna happen, whether or not that's based on evidence. So if you know what your particular thinking trap is that you're prone to, it can actually make you faster at identifying when you're falling into that trap and can help you to kind of plot a way out of it. Um, the other reason it can be helpful is that sometimes there are particular questions you can use to challenge your negative thoughts that relate to your thinking trap. So if you're a black and white thinker or an all or nothing thinker, a useful question might be, are there shades of gray in the situation that I'm ignoring? 
You know, is there another way to look at this other than this talk is fantastic or this talk is crap? You know, could it be like mostly pretty good but with some rough spots, for example, would be a shades of gray way of thinking of it. So knowing our thinking traps can be helpful in identifying when we're having negative thoughts. It can also be helpful in enabling us to challenge those negative thoughts. So step three is often to um, ask ourselves some questions to see if we can kind of loosen up that negative thinking. So this is actually pretty similar to what a lot of us do. You know, if you're really nervous about giving a talk, you might ask your best friend who's in the front row. Um, you might sound really nervous about giving a talk and he might say, you're actually a really good public speaker. I think you're gonna do a fantastic job. So if someone I really care about knew I was thinking this thought, what would they say to me? Because oftentimes we'll bounce our worried thoughts or our negative thoughts off other people and if we're lucky, they'll say something kind of helpful back that can help us to look at that from a slightly different perspective. Um, what evidence do I have that supports this thought? What evidence do I have that doesn't support this thought? If someone that I really care about, in, in the case of this new mom, if someone that, that Mia really cared about was having that thought and they were in the exact same situation, what would Mia say to them? Would she, would she say, yeah, you must be a real crap mom. It's shocking. Or would she say, you know, sometimes the baby's having a good day and sometimes the baby's having a bad day and sometimes it takes longer to settle and sometimes she's faster to settle and you don't have a lot of control over that. Maybe she had gas, who knows, right? So if she, taught, if she was thinking about what she would say to a friend, it would probably be a lot less harsh than what she's saying to herself. So in CBT, we have like long lists of these questions and on these slides I've kind of listed some of the more popular ones. So the goal of this then would be to come up with an alternative thought that's kind of more fair, more realistic, more helpful. So it might be something like what we said, my baby takes different amounts of time to settle on different days. Sometimes she actually settles pretty fast for me. It isn't fair to call myself a terrible mom. I've learned a lot since she was born and I do a lot of things that indicate that I really care for her. That's a thought that is kind of more fair, right? It, it takes into consideration, yeah, today's not a good day. She's not settling very fast. Um, but it also takes into account the fact that she has a lot of things that do suggest that she's a good mom and it doesn't label her. So it's a type of thinking that's kind of more balanced. And so if you are able to challenge a negative thought, it's not like you go from being completely miserable to delirious with joy, but you go from hopefully completely miserable to kind of mildly unhappy. So you should get a change in the intensity of your negative state, maybe not a complete um, eradication of that negative state. So that's a very quick example of some cognitive restructuring. Um, I think the other thing to recognize is you need to make healthy thinking a habit. So that's great that Mia went ahead and came up with that alternate thought. Saying that alternate thought to herself one time is not gonna eliminate all future thoughts about being a terrible mom, right? She's gonna need to put some time and energy into practicing repeating those kinds of alternate thoughts to herself over and over again until it becomes a little bit more of a habit. It really does take time and practice to be able to do this. And sometimes it can be helpful to actually, if you've got a thought that keeps on coming up again and again, to actually have what we used to call a coping card, we've actually done on, a, on a, like a recipe card, with a negative thought on one side and the alternative thought on the flip side, carried around in your purse with you and when that negative thought comes out, you can whip it out and you've got the alternative thought available to you. Nowadays people are doing it on their cell phone, um, but same idea, right? Just having something that's like a, a cheat sheet that can help you to challenge those negative thoughts that come up again and again. So, moving on, let's talk about problem solving, because that's my next tip. Um, low mood and problem solving and problems go hand in hand. Sometimes problems are the reason you got depressed in the first place, like you got fired from your job after 20 years working for a company, and that really bums you out, and so that's why you get depressed in the first place. 
Other times, it's not why you got depressed, but it's part of what keeps depression going. So maybe as Bob becomes more depressed, he kind of stops opening his mail. And as he stops opening his mail, bills kind of start to pile up and then like people start calling him and leaving nasty messages on his answering machine about how he needs to pay up or else this, that, or the other thing. And so that's not why he got depressed, but now that he is depressed, having the constant harassing telephone calls from his creditors is gonna help to keep him in that depressed state. So it can be really important if there are problems connected to your low mood state to be able to solve those problems. So what I've listed on this next side and what I'm going to gloss over very rapidly um, are the steps of problem solving. And you guys are probably at least somewhat familiar with these. So first step is to identify and define the problem. And that's something you really wanna do very specifically. You want to be very focused and precise in how you, how you define your problem. So now that Bob's been off work for a while, um, he's having financial problems. If he defines his problem as I'm having financial problems, that, I don't even know where to go with that. That's, that's huge. I, I don't even know what angle to approach that from, right? If he funnels it down and gets more precise and says something like, I can't pay the minimum payment on my credit card, all of a sudden I start thinking, oh, okay, because that's now a nice specific focused problem. And I think if you get a nice specific focus problem, what starts to happen is you get these ideas popping up in your head like popcorn, like, oh, well maybe he could call the credit card company and ask for a payment holiday. Maybe he could ask his parents to help him. Maybe he could, you know, cash in some of his RSPs and get some money that way. So once I've defined it down more narrowly, suddenly these ideas start popping up that when I had a really broad, vague kind of problem definition, weren't even occurring to me. So I guess that would be one really important tip. You also need to formulate what your goal is. Is his goal to pay the minimum payment on his credit card each month, for example? You want to brainstorm potential solutions. Again, people with depression often are not terribly creative in their thinking, right? They tend to be quite rigid, they're tired. Um, it's hard for them to think clearly and so it'd be really important to involve other people in this process. A lot of times other people are way more creative about our life situations, about ideas that we can use to, to solve difficulties in our lives than we are. So relying on others can be really helpful. Once you come up with a bunch of different ideas, you wanna consider the pros and cons of each idea, right? So what are the pros and cons for me? What are the pros and cons for people around me? Um, both in the short term and in the long term, because some of these solutions are probably actually really viable options and some of them might not be great ideas, like robbing a bank would probably help him, but there's some cons to that with the incarceration and stuff. Um, so you need to consider the pros and cons. You need to pick one um, and make a plan for how you're gonna implement it and kind of, then you need to carry it out. And need to evaluate because maybe his first attempt, maybe he calls the bank and says, is it okay for me to take a payment holiday? I'm kind of between jobs right now. Maybe the bank says no. And so then he's gonna say, okay, that didn't solve my problem. Now I need to go back up to the beginning and look at, go back through the process again. Do I need to define the problem differently? Do I have a different goal? Do I maybe go back and pick one of the other solutions that I came up with that I didn't choose this time around that might actually be a, a good idea or even a better idea than the one that I tried? So you may need to kind of loop through this more than one time, and I think a lot of times people either don't try, or they try one thing, it doesn't work, and then they become discouraged because they're depressed, and they give up. And problems that are ignored, I mean, occasionally they go away, but more often they fester. So it's quite important if you're having problems that are connected to low mood to be able to recognize that and actually engage in problem solving.
Um, because I ran through that really quickly, um, there is a good resource for problem solving available on the web, so at the BC Partners for Mental Health and Addictions uh, website, which is here to help.bc.ca, they actually have like a little four-page PDF that you can download on problem solving that actually goes through this in a lot more detail, which I would strongly recommend if you want to learn more about problem solving. Um, one of my last tips is to seek support. So, um, as we discussed earlier, a lot of people who are dealing with depression um, are pulling back from other people in their lives and they aren't seeking support. They aren't reaching out to people within their community. Um, and it can be really important to do that, to connect with other people who are gonna support you in healthy coping strategies for managing your depression. Maybe not your drinking buddies, um, but people that are gonna support you in wellness, right? The people who have healthy lifestyles themselves and who can support you in, in developing and changing those patterns. You also want to seek support from your family doctor. For most people, the kind of primary source of care is actually your family doctor. They're normally the first person that you go to. Um, and if you do go to see them, it's important to speak up not just about, you know, the physical symptoms like I can't sleep or my tummy hurts or I have headaches, but also about the emotional symptoms that you're experiencing. Because sometimes if you don't bring it up, they won't ask about it and you'll end up getting missed. Um, and you need to be persistent in asking for the support you need. A lot of times the support we need is, is quite broad ranging, right? We might need emotional support. We might need somebody that we can just kind of talk to about how bummed out we are that we were the ones selected to be downsized when the company restructured. We might need practical support. You know, sometimes it's really hard just to even make yourself a meal. And so sometimes the practical support you need is, can we come, can I come over to your house? Can we make dinner together and share a meal? Or, you know, I'm really having a tough time getting out of the house and exercising. Can you come by my house and pick me up and take me out for a 20-minute walk around the park? So sometimes we think need very practical things from people. So it's important to really think about what are the things I need and to be assertive in communicating that that's what you need and to be persistent. Um, and chances are no one person is going to be able to be everything that you need them to be, right? Your emotional support person might not be the person that takes you for walks, might not be the person who cooks. Um, so it really does kind of take a village of people to help you support, get the support you need and move through this experience. And again, at the BC Partners website, here to help.bc.ca, they um, also have a little informational um, pamphlet on seeking support. So speaking of support, um, I know that when we do these community talks, a lot of times people are here um, perhaps because they're experiencing depression, but often we have a good turnout of people who are supporting a loved one who's experiencing depression and maybe that person can't come out or doesn't wanna come out and they're here to kind of gather information and take it back to their loved one. So I do wanna spend a little bit of time talking about what if you are supporting someone with depression, what you can do to help them out. Before we get to what's helpful, let's talk about what's not helpful but very common. And that is um, kind of the tough love approach. So saying things like, you know, you just, you just need to try harder. Or, you know, if you really loved me, you'd do this. Or, you know you'd feel better if you exercised. Why aren't you getting out there? Um, things like that. Oh, only a couple of them are here. Stop feeling sorry for yourself and make a change. And to be fair, when you're dealing with somebody who's been suffering from depression, particularly if it's been going on for a while, you can get impatient. You can feel a bit fried and tired of always supporting them and kind of carrying them in some way. And so chances are at some point, one of these, you may not be perfectly patient and kind. At some point, one of these things may come out of your mouth and that's understandable. Um, you want to limit the frequency with which that happens. Um, but there are things you can do that are more helpful. So let's talk about that because this is depressing. Um, so what can you do that actually is helpful? Um, one of the really important things to recognize is um, depression is bigger than you. 
Um, you can help, but you cannot actually physically pull your loved one through depression and cause them to be not depressed. And it's surprising and touching how many of us try to do that. How many of us think, well, if I just dedicated myself to getting them to exercise and eat right, and if I take them out and do this and do that, I'll, I'll kind of pull them through the depression. You can't actually, you can't actually do that. Um, but you can support them in a number of important ways. You may want to support them and love them and take care of them, um, but you need to treat them like an adult, right? So if you take all their responsibilities off them, thinking you're really helping them out, you're also, in some ways, not giving them credit for the fact that they are adults and they do have the ability to work on towards helping themselves. And also, if you take all their responsibilities on you, you're likely to go down for the count. So that's another thing to keep in mind. So you really want to encourage them, but you want to know when to back off. So you want to, you know, some gentle pressure is okay, but applying too much pressure is overwhelming. Um, no one chooses to be depressed. No one chooses to be depressed. It might look like it, because they know there are things that would, in theory, be helpful that they're really struggling to do, but no one would choose this. Um, they're stuck, and they need, your, they need help to move through it, and you can be an important part of that, um, but they can't just stop it. And if they can't just stop it, it's not because they don't love you, it's not because they don't appreciate everything you're doing, it's really not within their ability to do without a specific plan to work through it. Um, you want to be positive and reinforce their efforts. So, you know, if your loved one used to run 10K um, and now it's really a stretch for them to walk, you know, around the block, um, you want to be encouraging of that. You don't want to focus on what they used to do. You want to focus on, you know what, that's great, because last week maybe they didn't go around the block at all, and this week they went around the block. That's like a huge improvement. So you want to really recognize and support and cheer on the things that they are doing. That will be encouraging. That will help them to move forward. You don't want to create your own failure experiences by your comments about what they're doing or not doing or how it compares to what they used to do before. And um, don't ignore problems for fear that it might upset your loved one. Um, if there's a problem going on, they probably know. You know, if, if you've noticed that they're, you know, becoming really unhealthy or they're not showering anymore or they're gaining a huge amount of weight, those kinds of things that may happen as part of depression, you're not actually doing them a favor if you never comment on it. If there's a significant problem and you're recognizing it and you're concerned, it is okay to point it out. It's not okay to judge them for the fact that it's happening. So what you can do specifically, educate yourself about depression. Coming out here tonight, accessing some of the resources I'm going to talk about is one way to do that. Um, spread a message of hope. Let them know that effective treatments are available, um, and they do work. And sometimes it takes a few kicks at the can before you find the right medication or the right therapist to kind of help them on their journey, but it's worth encouraging them to seek that out and to be persistent. Um, if they are seeing a mental health professional, it's often really helpful to get permission, if they're okay with it and their, their health care provider is okay with it, to go to a session. I know a lot of times when I'm working with new moms who are depressed, I actually specifically request that the partner comes in for a session so I can explain, here's what depression is, here's what your loved one is trying to do, here are the things you can do that will help us on our journey to kind of move things along, and here are the things you might do that actually you think are helping that may be actually setting us back. So if they're open to it and their therapist is open to it, it's often really helpful to be part of that process and to understand and be involved. 
Um, really important message is to make sure you're taking care of yourself. It's that airplane thing where they say, please apply your own oxygen mask before you apply theirs. You really need to do this. So you need to look after yourself. All that self-care stuff I talked about, the enjoyable activities, taking care of business, getting stuff done, that applies to you as well. These are actually, a lot of what I've talked about today, frankly, are wellness skills. They're not, they're, they're antidepressant if you do them, but they're also just wellness skills. They're things that really all of us should be doing anyways. And when we get depressed, we kind of get off track a little bit. And coming back on track with those things is really important. So you don't want to get off track in your process of trying to help somebody else. Um, take pressures off yourself, if possible. Um, seek your own support from family and friends. Um, there are some family support groups. Um, I know Mood Disorder Association has some of them that you may want to look into. And have, have respite, you know, get breaks for yourself too, because that's important. It can be tiring and it can be a long journey. And so it's important that you're getting your breaks as well. So I feel like in some ways, probably one of the most important messages of tonight is kind of the message of persistence, whether you yourself are experiencing depression or someone you love is experiencing depression. You need to kind of be patient with it and be persistent with it. it. It takes a while to learn these skills. It takes a while to get good at applying these skills. Um, you know, we all feel lower depressed from time to time. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to turn into a depression. Um, and if you do find yourself starting to experience some symptoms of depression or if a loved one is starting to experience some symptoms or a return of symptoms of depression, um, a lot of times what they need to do to get back on track is kind of the stuff we've talked about before. One of the really um, great things about skills-based interventions like CBT is if it worked to get you better once before, it'll probably work to get you better again, right? Once you've learned these skills and you know how to apply them, you can kind of get off track for a while and not use them, but when you go back to them and reapply them, generally speaking, they will bring you back to where you need to be. So it's kind of this really exciting change in how you see the world and change in how you run your life that can actually be very powerful in terms of helping you to get well and stay well. I said that I would talk a little bit about resources, so I now just want to quickly touch on a few resources that I think are really good. Um, when I gave a version of this talk last year during the playoffs, and very few people showed up, so thank you, um, it was in partnership with the um, Capilano Library in Edgemont Village, and they were so keen on this idea that they actually said, we'll buy some books. You tell us you know, what books you think would be good for treatment of depression, and we'll get some books, and so that's what we did. So um, these books that are listed here are actually all available there, if you're interested. They have multiple copies. Um, so Mind Over Mood, which is probably the classic self-help book um, for treatment of depression. It's heavier on challenging negative thinking. It's very strong in that particular domain, so it's a great book. Um, a book written by my friend in the UK, Chris Williams, um, Overcoming Depression and Low Mood. What I like about that book is it's divided into chapters. So there's a chapter on challenging negative thinking. There's a chapter on using exercise to boost your mood. There's a chapter on problem solving. There's, so it's kind of like modular. There are these chapters and you can read all of them or two of them or three of them, whatever seems most relevant to you. So I recommend that book. I think it's good. Um, this is another book that I only came across fairly recently by Paul Gilbert. And what I like about Paul Gilbert's approach is he really talks about the importance of self-compassion, right? Like being kind to yourself. 
which when you think about it, people with depression are so incredibly self-critical that remembering to be kind to yourself about the fact that you're struggling and being gentle with yourself as you try to make changes is tremendously important. And this book actually has a really nice focus on that that I think is, that I think is great and makes it well worth looking at. Um, other great resources. The Antidepressant Skills Workbook um, by two former supervisors of mine, Dan Bilsker and Randy Patterson, um, is a great uh, self-help resource. It's a free downloadable PDF. It's available in English. It's available in, I think, three or four other languages. Um, there's a teen version of it. Um, there's a version for dealing with depression at work. There's a version for dealing with depression if you've had healthcare, health conditions. Um, so it's a great portal if you go there. There's all these different books that you can download. They're all totally free. And you'll see that it's very similar to some of the ideas and skills that I've presented here today. So I think that's a great resource. Um, I wrote a little book, um, so, which is probably not relevant for most of you, but if you know um, a pregnant or postpartum woman who's struggling with postpartum anxiety or depression, um, through BC Women's Hospital, we received money to actually write some self-help books to help women experiencing that. And so some of the examples are written really in terms of I've got a new baby or I'm pregnant. And I think a lot of times women seeing themselves reflected in the stories and examples is actually really important. Makes them feel less alone, makes them realize it's not an unusual problem. So that's um, another resource that you can access. The wellness modules I've already talked about, problem solving, social support, challenging negative thinking, sleep. Um, there's a wellness module for almost everything. Um, really great resource to go to. Um, the Mood Disorder Association of BC has some, um, they have some online resources and they also now are running um, low cost um, manual based treatment for depression. Um, so that's a resource that you may want to look into. And there's an online um, kind of CBT self-help program actually operated through Australia um, where you can sign up and log in and you can actually go online to this mood gym and learn CBT coping techniques. So that's another great free resource. One other resource that I wanted to highlight, and I should say that um, this is a program I've been involved with for eight years now, I guess. Um, and some of you may have heard of it. It's the Bounce Back Program. So this is actually a program that's funded in the province through the Ministry of Health. And it's basically uh, a free program. You get referred by your doctor. Um, and you get a little telephone-based assessment where they ask you some questions over the phone to find out how severe your depression is, whether you think you're ready to do self-help. Um, and then what they do is they mail you uh, workbooks on a variety of different topics. It's actually based on the materials my friend Chris wrote. So you get to read a couple of introductory workbooks about what is depression, what is CBT, and then there's 18 different workbooks for you to choose from. If you want a workbook on managing anxiety, there's a workbook on managing anxiety. You want one on assertiveness, there's one on assertiveness. Information for family and friends, problem solving, challenging negative thoughts, overcoming reduced activity and avoidance. It's kind of like choose your own adventure. You pick which workbooks you want, they mail you the workbooks, and you have a coach who calls you about every couple weeks for 15 or 20 minutes and says, hey, did you get the workbook on assertiveness? How did that go? Did you have any questions? Did you try it out? What went well? What didn't go well? What would you like to do next? So it's kind of like having that personal trainer that just kind of checks in on you and says, how are you doing? Because if you're like most people, including myself, you probably have some self-help books on your bookshelf that are dusty and the spines haven't been cracked yet. And so what's really cool about Bounce Back is that you actually have that support and it's free and all that stuff gets mailed to you and it doesn't cost you a penny. Um, and it's been so successful in BC. We've had over 40,000 referrals now um, that we're now expanding it and it's running in parts of Ontario and um, parts of Manitoba. 
So it's actually going province uh, nationwide now. Um, so if you want to learn more about that, you can go to our website, bouncebackbc.ca. Uh, so very long-windedly at the end, I would like to say, <laughs> um, you know, effective treatments for depression are available. Um, so please don't give up, whether it's you or someone that you care about. Um, there is something out there that will help you. It is frustrating when it takes a few attempts to get there, but you will get there with sufficient persistence. Um, and I really appreciate that you guys came out tonight in the pouring rain um, to hear more about it because it's so important that we recognize that this is happening because it is happening. It's so important that we get people educated about the fact that there are effective treatments that are available so that we can finally help people to kind of be supported in wellness in our communities. So thank you.